Hi, my name is Jamie Lynch, and you are listening to Eating Habits, my podcast about everything restaurants. I will explore the human element of the hospitality business, and I'll talk to the who's who in restaurants, explore their stories, and hear what's on their minds in the ever-changing landscape of the food and beverage industry. Hey there, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Eating Habits. This week, I talk with Brian Baxter from the Catbird Seat in Nashville, Tennessee. I got to tell you, Brian invited me into the Catbird Seat to have a tasting menu after we recorded this episode. I got to tell you, the food was incredible. There were a couple dishes that I just couldn't even wrap my mind around. Man, they are doing such a killer job there. I highly recommend this experience to anybody who's in Nashville. I I think Brian is one of the most creative, cerebral, and focused chefs in the market right now. I mean, his food was was so precise and thoughtful, thought-provoking. It was just a really excellent experience all the way around. Also, I think it's great. It's a small restaurant. They seat about 20 guests at a time for each seating twice a night. So it's a very intimate environment where the cooks and chefs actually serve the guests, um, discuss the food with them, interact. It's just, it's an all around an awesome experience. And I hope that you guys enjoy this episode. We didn't waste a whole lot of time getting into Brian's uh, history. We kind of dove right in to the creative process, his approach to food. We talk a lot about his ethos in the kitchen, mentoring cooks, and um, just how he approaches writing his tasting menu. Thank you. Enjoy the show. What's up? This is uh, Brian Baxter, and you're listening to Eating Habits. Great job, chef. Thanks. I've been practicing. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad to finally have you in the hot seat. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, man. So we met, like I don't know, three years ago, two and a half years ago, at the Nashville Chef's Feed weekend. They brought in like a bunch of chefs from all over the country. I came from Charlotte or Charleston or whatever. You, I think, came from Atlanta at that point. Yep. You were working with Kevin, Kevin, Kevin Gillespie at uh, Gun Show. Uh, cold. Well, well actually, cold beer. You were. Uh, that's right. Yep. We opened cold beer. Did you? Um, did you? Did you work at Gun Show? I did recipe testing there, but okay. I wasn't. Actual you were like on the. Gotcha. All right. Cool. So we we met at that, and then a lot has happened since then. Not to mention the pandemic, but you've moved around quite a bit. Yep. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So you know, during not to jump ahead, but during the pandemic, we were all furloughed. I was actually driving back from a dinner I did. Um, with Chino at Hus Savannah mm-hmm. um, and it was March 12th it was my birthday and it was like listening to the right radio that, was like, already kind of eerie yeah down there was eerie because there was like some National Guard kind of movement um, yep but it was so it was I mean it was early on it was, but yeah, it was, it was like so right new there, nobody right? really knew what was happening yet yeah so I eat at Chili's every year for my birthday. It's like my thing. <laughs> All right. We're going to have to go into some detail about that. <laughs> yeah, but we'll, go ahead and we'll tell your back. story. <laughs> but my mom had driven up from Florida. And, you know, the plan was to go get dinner at Chili's. And we had the baby, you know, in March. I guess he was probably almost a year at this point. By the time I got back from Savannah to Atlanta, they were like, we should just order it to go. We shouldn't go out to eat. And that was kind of like the first realization that, that something might be big weird. was coming. Yeah. So you were at Colbert at that point. Yep. And so 
what what happened for you guys for that? So we were we weren't sure what we were gonna do. We had had some kind of talks about different takeout options, you know, mm-hmm. trying to manage that way. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we kind of woke up to an email. We were supposed to go in on Tuesday, and we were all emailed that, you know, everybody was gonna furlough. And we were gonna close for now. Yeah. And that uh, was kind of like a national thing, I think, for yeah. everybody. So. You know, closed for about a month. Kevin and Marco, his business partner, they were both kind of doing uh, some meal prep stuff for for families that, you know, kids that were unable to go to school who, you know, it's kind of their only meal of the day sometimes. Yep. So they were doing that. Uh, When they started to rehire people, I had already been kind of talking to Josh Haberger and, and Max, you know, Josh reached out to me and was like, Hey, would you ever move back to Nashville? And I was like, yeah, you know, I missed it. Um, yeah. I said, I would love to. And he's like, well, you know, we're looking for someone to run the Capert seat. Is that something you're interested in? And it's something that I had always been interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think most chefs have fantasized at some point. I know I have been like, Ooh, yeah. that's a cool concept. I'd like to do that. Yeah. So, so you'd already had a seed in there that you were like, oh. Yeah, I mean, when I was at Husk, I was just like, man, it'd be awesome to get to do something like that, to get the opportunity to actually run the Capert C one day, mm-hmm. uh, just because of what it is. So yeah, I was like, yeah, that'd be awesome. So we started chatting a bit, and you know, at this point, nobody's working. We don't know what's going on. My original plan was to give Kevin two years and then mm-hmm. see how things were going, see if we liked Georgia and go from there. But... When Kevin reached out to me on kind of how everything was going to be rebranded and restructured in the company, you know, I, I told him about the opportunity at Capward Seat. He's like, you should do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, he, he felt, I think, bad about everything that had happened, even though it wasn't his fault. But right. he's like, you know, I moved your family down here and this happened. But, you know, it's not something anybody could plan for, you know. Totally. I, I know exactly how he feels. Yeah. That's uh, so. That's a rough for, I don't, I don't think people realize that as being an operate, like an owner operator, like having to pull the trigger on those kinds of decisions where mm-hmm. like you, you're not at fault. It's not your business. That's, that's an issue. It's like, there's something going on. That's like, and it's like a safety thing and you have to lay people off. Like that's crazy. Yeah. It's you know? just out of your control. Yeah. So that's super unfortunate. I don't want to get too deep into your past cause I think it's well documented and I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll preface it at the beginning of this episode, but You'd been in Nashville, so you worked for for Sean mm-hmm. at McCrady's yep. um, in Charleston, um, and that is, that's kind of how you you first got introduced to Nashville, right? Right. You were part of the opening team at Husk Nashville, yep. and that was a big opening. Like I remember, I remember when they were expanding here. Mm-hmm. That was what two? It was two thousand thirteen. Thirteen. Yep. I mean, everybody was talking about that shit. I mean, Sean was like the hottest shit on the planet at that mm-hmm. point, like with McCrady's and the first Husk opening in Charleston and just like what he was doing. I think shortly before that, he was on um, Mind of a Chef or that something like uh, that, We right? filmed Mind of a Chef opening week, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, but he Holy had been on, shit. you know, he had been on an episode of Bourdain with the, the Cook It Raw guys mm-hmm. with, right. I mean, all the best chefs in the world at that time. Yep. Um, we had done a couple events with like Ben Shuri, Daniel Patterson, Magnus mm-hmm. Nielsen, like all these guys yeah. were starting to come over. Uh, so like 
And was that part of the mind of a chef thing? Like, because they were all kind of, <laughs> I think that was all before mine, you know, that was all before mind of a chef. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't know if how that got kind of started, but mm-hmm. I did. He, I remember him showing me an episode for a TV show that they, a pilot they filmed, which wasn't mind of a chef, but yeah. So there's definitely stuff brewing like while I was still at McCrady's and we were already knew that we were moving to Nashville. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't really know the inner workings of all. Yeah. Well, how was it? What was it like working with Sean during that time? Because, I mean, he was he was I would consider him to be a hyper celebrity at that point. Yeah. I mean, right. Like everybody knew his name. He was definitely doing something new and fresh mm-hmm. um, that and he was pushing the envelope for Southern just awareness, like Southern cuisine awareness and stuff. Yeah. Um, as well as just being an outstanding, like super methodical technical chef. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was kind of like a superstar. What was it like to be working in kind of with that group? Because also like the team that he had was fucking super badasses. Like, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like I mean, everybody had, that. you know, Dano, Dano and Jeremiah, yep. uh, Jeremiah from the Dabney. Yep. Uh, John Sleesman, who ran McCrady's when they went to the tasting counter, he's at the bar at Willett. Mm-hmm. Um, Andrew and Nate are both out at South Hall Farms now. Um, our buddy Kyle's in Nebraska. He was incredible. Sean Nealon was a pastry chef, and he ended up at, uh, I think, Qua and a couple places. For He opened in San Francisco, Yeah, and he's baking bread now. I'm trying to think. Uh, J.J. Basil was, like, our R&D chef for that's, a while. That's awesome. And he's like the one who like really. So what, what was that experience like stuff. for you? To me, it was incredible because you're because you were a pretty young you were a young cook at that time. Yeah, so, well, it's funny were, because I don't know if you, you were remember Sean's podcast. Or, sorry, uh, um, his uh, his blog, Ping Island Strike. I never. never so he saw had this it. blog. So that's how I knew about Sean was okay. through my old chef. Was he had this blog, Ping Island Strike, and there were a lot of other chefs that all had these blogs at the same time. You know, like John Shields when he was at Townhouse. Uh-huh. Yeah. This guy, Chad Zilla in Miami. So Sean was doing like a lot of the hydrocolloid stuff with mm-hmm. Southern food, which I think was, we were all drawn to. Mm-hmm. By the time I got there, most of that was done. Yeah. And it was like more focusing on, you know, the heirloom grains, um, you know, bringing these seeds back that had been mm-hmm. almost completely extinct, you know, with like, he handed me 11 field peas, one, or it was a, a rice pea. He's like, took me, you know, three years to collect all 11 of these seeds. Like, don't fuck this up. Right. You're like, oh, shit. I said, okay. This guy, this guy's like. Yeah, he's like, you, if you, <laughs> like, you push it too deep, it's not going to sprout. If it's too shallow, the bird's going to eat it. The right. future of southern food is in your hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I was just, and he just left, walked out. And I, I like, love oh, it. Man. Went, oh, crap. I love you know? it. Well, they grew. Yeah. Um, yeah. Pass that test. But it's like, I've never farmed before, and I don't know what I'm doing. But, you know, we were taking, you know, Sea Island red peas and learning how to make shoyu from them and and vinegars Mm -hmm. and all the stuff that he talks about, you know, kind of in his show. And, uh, you know, what's really what we were doing. And it was was cool because I had never been exposed to that before. So it really gets your mind going with, especially when you move to Husk and it's like everything has to be from the south, like, if there's an ingredient we want to use, like if we want gochujang, we got to figure out how to make it ourselves, or yeah. you know whatever. Yeah, yeah. You're not buying. You're not buying like uh, cases of, of crap. Yeah. You know, you're like, okay, we need to make that. Yeah, exactly. Cool. So that so was. You see, it, so it led into like fermentation and like all that kind. Yeah, of... Yeah, charcuterie was a big thing that Abacrates and that Travis was doing at Hust there, so that continued on. But it's it's a lot of pressure because, 
all all this attention was on Sean, so the expectations high with the opening, right? You know, so filming a TV show, rearranging the kitchen, prepping for the show, and make service. sure all these cooks that have never worked with us before are ready for service. Yeah, making sure the expectations the same, trying to get them on the same page as what we expect, which was a little more intense back then. You know, like it was 2013, so it's a little so different. what was that like? Tell uh, us. Like, like that, that, that's what I'm curious about. Like, I, well, what, like. <laughs> I mean, I understand a little bit of that pressure, you know, but not like that. Yeah. You know, and I can imagine that it was pretty high octane. Yeah. In I mean, that kitchen. I mean, you guys were probably well, well caffeinated and yeah, 100%. fueled. <laughs> yeah. Little sleep and lots of caffeine. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty mellow, but I played football for a long time. So I'm um, also pretty intense and I switch pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I don't want something to not be right because Sean's not going to go say something to somebody else. Like, why isn't this right? Yeah. He's going to come to me and ask me why it's not the way it's supposed to be. Right. And, you know, coming up in kitchens when you're younger, it was, uh, it was much more intense and a little bit different on how you could treat. Yeah. (laughs) Which I think, you know, there's like a balance of managing out of fear and out of, you know, I guess, respect from both sides mm-hmm. um you know i probably to this day still if sean came in to eat would be like afraid to disappoint him right you know um but that's kind of always what i've known yeah know? i never wanted to disappoint my dad um and you know sean's kind of like yeah i feel like you're you're whichever you're chef you have enough. worked for 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 you know i've worked for him longer than anybody else so there's that same level of respect. Um, but there's also that fear of like, I don't want to get jammed up because I messed up. But then also it's not like, I'm not afraid to get yelled at. Sure. But I'm afraid of the disappointment. If yeah. That makes sense. Totally. And I don't think it's like that anymore. Yeah. I don't, for, I don't for most chefs. Yeah. Well, not I think, for I think, me, but for, yeah. for most cooks, young cooks coming up yeah. because it's, it's this like this expectation that I'm going to graduate culinary school just put the if pen somebody, on. Yeah. I'm the, in like, I'm the guy. I think I know everything. And if chef yells at me, then he's just an asshole. Mm-hmm. Well, no, you're not listening. You're not doing your job properly. And I've told you what to do. And it's yeah. not. So I have to find a way to get through to you. And if it's fear, then it's fear. I want to talk about this because I myself have had to navigate this minefield. I'm sure. Um, you know, I came up under um, Danielle Balud and Andrew Carmelini and, and, um, Charlie Palmer, and these guys were pretty aggressive mm-hmm. um, chefs. Now, you know, they were always hyper supportive if you were a fucking badass and doing your stuff, and like, you know, if your mise en place was correct and you were focused during service, like, they were fine. If you were a slacker or fucked around, like, you would get blasted. Mm-hmm. I actually have a great story. I don't know if I've told it on the podcast. I should tell it about working for, um, I'm going to, I'm going to blast Michael Mina right now. Okay. Um, so Michael was the first Michelin level four star chef. I worked for at Aqua in San Francisco and I was an intern. So I was there, I got sent there by this master chef of France to do my internship. So I was like, I'm not fucking up. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to be there doing whatever. But I was also like this little punker kind of like jerk off. So like the whole crew, we did like 450 covers a night, right? Just pounded and everything's all in and uh, I was working in the garage. We had two services. It was like the first service and then like we'd flip and then have a second service. 
And so we'd all funnel out into the alley and like just chain smoke a cigarette like as fast as you could and get back to your station and get ready to go. Well, this particular night, I was the last one filtering in. I was like puffing that second cigarette, you know? And everybody kind of filters into their, their stations and it was like resetting. And um, the food runner sticks his head out. And then he called me Rodman because he's like a super Lakers fan. And I was all tatted up. So he called me Rodman because yeah. I, I had like fucking piercings and shit. And he was just like, <laughs> so he tells the food runner, he goes, go get Rodman. So the food runner sticks his head out and he's like, uh, Rodman, Michael wants to see you. I was like, oh, fuck. So I throw my cigarette down. I go in there and I try to like slide by him on the line to get to the garbage day. And he just like stops me. And he's a big dude. He's like 6'2 or something. Yeah. He's like this little shit. And he just starts fucking blasting me, like screaming in my face, like spitting on me about like, what did I learn in the alley? Like, what am I doing out there jerking off all day? Like, what did you learn out there smoking cigarettes? Like, blah, 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 blah. And then he rips the pocket off my chef coat, like just tears it off, and shoves it in my hand. <laughs> and I'm literally like, like tears are starting to come down my face. And yeah. I'm a fucking punk, like I'm a hardcore kid, right? Yeah. And I'm just, and the whole team's just got heads down like and I went and I just moped back to the garmage in the shit and just had the most humiliated service like and yeah. from that point on I was like all right I'm never going to be that guy yeah again and I kept that pocket and put it in my like my internship like manual or whatever I turned in I was like that's what happens in badass kitchens yeah we can't do that anymore no so that's the thing <laughs> is like how to you know I, I got spanked three times that I remember growing up as a kid. And after the third time, I said, you know what? I'm just going to start listening. I'm not going to disobey anymore. Right. You know, I don't know how someone has that. It's just different. Yeah. Now. Like, how do, you, how do you get, like, we all have that moment. Like, yep. oh, man, I remember this reaction. I do not want to see that reaction again. Mm -hmm. So how do, you, how do you navigate that? So I've had to do that. Like, I, you know, Five Church, when we opened Five Church, that was my first executive chef position. I'd run, I was a CDC for multiple people. I'd like, I'd run kitchens before, but I was never like the guy, you know? And I didn't have a mentor at that point to like be like, hey, this is how you run a team. This is how you, you know, are the chef, mm -hmm. you know? And I kind of had to figure that out and I was not very good at it. Because I had a chip on my shoulder and a lot to prove too and I wanted to do it my way. And so I kind of dug into those experiences, you know, so I was pretty aggressive, like the first couple of years we were open. And at some point I realized like, <laughs> like this, first of all, I am fucking miserable. Like I'm leaving service and I'm like, I'm upset because I lose my temper. Mm -hmm. I'm acting like a raging animal, like I'm angry, you know, and I have to like do something to like combat that right. frustration and anger because service didn't go the way I wanted or whatever. And so it was like an internal thing where I was like, this has got to stop. Like, I'm not getting what I want out of my team, first off. So it's mm -hmm. ex exacerbating my, you know, behavior. And, and I don't feel good. Like, this is supposed to be, like, my pride and joy and, like, you know, my crown jewel and, like, my achievement. And I feel awful, you know, right. acting this way. Um, and so it took a long time to kind of figure that. Like, that was the first step, right, is being like, okay, I need to change this, this, what I'm doing. And, um, and that took years. I'm still working on it, obviously. But... What is what was your approach like? What was your experience? Uh, well, was it was well, the catbird seat your first well, executive chef position or? Uh, well, Husk, I took over as uh, CDC. Well, yeah, executive okay. chef. Uh, took over CDC at Husk in 2014. Okay, I quit drinking in 2015. So that was one thing. When I I hate brunch. 
Uh-huh. So, you know, coming into <laughs> and Husk, brunch. And Husk gets pounded for brunch. So right? busy. And then yeah. you get pounded again for dinner. Yeah. Two days in a row. You yeah, know, so, yeah. That's rough. Um, you know, for me, I think the biggest thing I learned at Husk was how to manage different people and how different people were. Some people like to get yelled at. You know, now I don't want to be yelled at. Yep. But when I was younger, like, I would take it. I would have worked yes. for Gordon Ramsay in a heartbeat. <laughs> You know, my, I mean, my, I don't, it doesn't, yeah, there's times where like, you're like pissed off and like, I just want to hit this guy. Like, yeah. I don't understand, you know, there were times, there were times at McCrady's where like the the level of expectation was so high, they would just look for something wrong on your station. If you were having a good yes. night, just to make, yeah. just to remind you, like it has to be perfect. Yeah. But you know, it's the same thing out of respect. Like I know it's nothing personal in the kitchen. So there's times where you get frustrated, but after service, you know, like it's water under the bridge. Just forget yeah. just shake it off. And I have, you know, I get really pissed off, but five minutes later I've moved on. Yeah. But I think I learned how different people respond. And then, you know, I'm still working on my patience, especially with two kids, but <laughs> not being hung over at eight in the morning yeah. definitely made it a little bit yes. easier for me to not be so frustrated. But also I think, you know, like as I've gotten older, as you get older, it's different. Yeah. Well, you can't bounce back either. Yeah. Were you, was your, was your decision to quit drinking because you had a drinking problem or was it more like your relationship to being, I think it's my relationship with people and myself, my overall health. Yeah. Like I said, I have a short temper. So if somebody said something to a friend of mine at a bar, I was not, I was quick to, <laughs> you know. Yeah. What'd you say? You know, yeah. So, um, You're a bit of an instigator. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't like people messing with my friends. So yeah. <laughs> it's just kind of like I wanted to feel better. I wanted to get in shape. I didn't want to have not be able to control myself yep. in instances with relationships or even friends or out in public. Mm-hmm. And then also being a hardcore kid you know, yep. getting tattooed all the time by my buddy Ryan and straight edge. We just, we're talking a lot. And mm-hmm. I just, one day was like, I remember waking up one day and be like, I'm not drinking anymore. That was it. My, my day for that was after that chef's weekend. <laughs> <laughs> no shit, dude. Like that, that weekend was fucking brutal. It was. Yeah. And I, and I, I'm a really good drinker. Like I can drink a lot <laughs> of a lot of different stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, but I have a quick temper too. And I can get like, I can get kind of aggressive and like whatever, but when I got back to to Charlotte after that whole weekend, it was it was a great weekend. I had a blast, and but it, but consumed a lot of booze. Like I was drinking a lot, and yeah. and, I, and I felt like I felt it at the end of that weekend. I was just like run down, frustrated. That's not like not a hundred, and um and so I talked to my my now fiance, she was my girlfriend. Then I was like, you know what? I'm gonna just like I'm gonna take a month off. Like I did one of those things, right? Mm-hmm. I just need to like clear my head and get get straight. And, um, and, and I just never went back and yeah. I just, I stopped drinking and like in the first couple of weeks kind of sucked cause I was like one of those habitual drinkers, you know, mm-hmm. it was like my nightcap medicine thing. Yep. Like just always had a glass of wine or whatever. I wouldn't get shit faced. I just like always had a glass of wine or something at the end of the night. And so I, after I got over that habit part of it and started feeling better, like my mind got clear yep. and I was like, holy shit, like what the fuck? Yeah. Um, and now I'm the, I'm a huge proponent for like all my team too. I'm like, just control your shit. Like you don't have to be sober or whatever. Like I like do what's right for you, but like 
the way we were partying, I think, probably mm-hmm. the way you were partying back in the day is like, you're just in a haze all the time. Yeah, exactly. You know? And it was like, it's Monday night. Uh, let's go, you know. Yeah, football's on. Yeah, let's find something to do. And I just like have never been a homebody. Yeah. But like, you know, except for on like certain things like Sunday, yeah, I want to like go, I'll wake up early, go get coffee when I was single, you know, do whatever, go to church or do, you know, whatever, do my stuff. And then it was like, I'm going to go get some food and I'm going to drink and watch football the rest of the day. Yeah. That was it. You know, it's like, that was it. It'd be the times with my buddy cash at my, we called each other roommate. Um, be like, Hey, let's go to three crow. Cause it's two for ones. It's 2 PM. He's like, Oh, it's sorry. It's only two. Like, it's like, yeah, but if we go now, like we'll go home at like seven. Yeah. And then at like 1130, <laughs> we're like walking down to 308. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, Oh, it happened again. Yeah. But you know, I could still, when I quit drinking, I was able to still go have these interactions and hang out with my friends. And mm-hmm. it, it didn't, I was never like tempted to, and then what, you know, at first, it's kind of like weird because you're going to these places and people expect you to take a shot or order a drink or whatever. And then yep. once I they, still get people doing that with me. Yeah. They're like, oh, I got your shot. I'm like, bro. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, I'm good. It. But it was cool because I, I would it? walk into like 308 and, you know, one of the guys would have a water with like a bunch of garnish on it. And <laughs> yeah, to me, you know? yeah. So it got to the point where everybody knew and it wasn't, it wasn't weird for right. me. You know, I would just drink a soda water or just hammer like pints of water yeah i would pee more than everybody drinking because <laughs> i was drinking so much water yeah so my hydration went up right which helps your health and your mind great. work it was great. like you're just like wow i'm like a superhero now that yeah I'm, but i feel amazing. like all of that trained me for having kids where i just don't get i don't sleep anymore either because like any time during the day i feel like there's always something i have to be doing because i don't have the time right now with kid like yeah it's like my day is just they never end. Yeah. When they go to sleep, you're like, oh, I have like five minutes. Yeah. I better go to the bathroom. Yeah. Like, I, mean, I better they, like. <laughs> oh, yeah. Get them ready in the morning. Like, I wake up. I have to like rush to get them breakfast, especially if, depending on. My son's been waking up early, but if he sleeps late, like, I, if I don't get them there while the kids are on the playground, it's like meltdown. Yeah. If they're on the playground, it's like, bye, see you. Yeah, they're yeah, out. They don't uh, care about me anymore, you know. So, I got to get there. So, it's like rush. And I rush to work or I rush to the gym, rush through a workout to rush to work, to rush to get everything ready for service. You know, so yep. it's just like this constant. It never stops. How's that going for you? How's that? How are you doing managing that? I feel like you have to be sober to manage that. Yeah. <laughs> like, like you just go off the rails. hundred percent. I mean, I'm not, I'm not working out as much as I'd like to, or sh- we've been short staffed, but one of our guys just got back. Uh, he'll be back today. So hoping to kind of get that consistency back with, working out because that's kind of like my, my outlet. And I can tell when I'm not able, you know, when I'm not able to have my routine Mm -hmm. that I, I get frustrated quicker. I have a short temper. I'm not able to, because I'm not able to get any of that stuff. Yep. Any aggression out any other way. You know, I don't, I don't go in mosh pits anymore because last time I did, I tore my meniscus. So it's like, (laughs) i I can't do it. And I'm, I was like, <laughs> you're the old man. Yeah, standing I thought in the about back it now. Like, yeah. I thought water. about it at a show not too long ago. And I was like, man, I'm almost 40. I can't. Yeah. Don't do it. I can't do it. Don't do I'm it. I'm going to hurt myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, but now like it's, so, I never understood like when you say something to somebody, the answer should just be yes, chef or no chef. 
Like, yeah, I don't want an explanation of why you're doing something. If I ever, I remember doing something one time, or I, sorry, I didn't do it. I was getting jammed up about something and I wasn't the one who did it. Mm-hmm. And I just said, yes, chef won't happen again. Yep. And then, you know, six hours later after service, he's like, oh, hey, so, you know, I didn't, I know you didn't do that. I'm, you know, I apologize for. Do you, do you have to manage those situations now in the, in the position that you're in? In your kitchen? Yeah, I still do. Because um, my whole thing on that was always like, I, I hate it when people talk back. I can't. I can't. I'm the same way as you. Like, mm-hmm. the chef says something, it's yes, like, yes, chef. Like, this is your thing. You know, I'm just, I'm a tool here to help facilitate that. Um, and I and I remember early on in the five church days, like, people would say, like, or, or a cook might say, oh, I didn't, I didn't prep that. I didn't cut that. Like, you fucking cooked it. Yeah, and it's you on plated station. it. Yeah, like that's your responsibility, man. Mm-hmm. Like I don't care who prepped it. Like you're serving it. You know, you're the like this is a representation of you and your cooking. You know, and now once I send it out, it's a representation of my cooking. Right. Um, and um, so like I never stood for that. Now that, that's one thing that would send me like over the edge like instantly. Yep. So it was like I didn't. I'm like I don't want to hear your shit. Like we're not serving that. That's it. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I remember. Uh, not to get sidetracked, but one time at McCready's, I was working fish veg. <clears throat> we had the sweet potato dish. I cooked them like bonito butter. And I was like, I didn't work there the day before, but I was cutting them. And I was like, these, these are kind of hard. And the guy look, working fish was like, oh, just, just start them a little earlier, like when the order comes in, and just cook them through. I was like, okay. So I you know, kept cutting them. And while we were cooking for, it was Alex from uh, ideas and food and bonjwing mm-hmm. and Sean comes in and he's going through everybody's station and he's going through everything and he grabs them. And he's like, starts setting them on my cutting boards, the raw, raw. So then he doesn't say anything to me. He just goes to Jeremiah. Yeah. And then Who Jeremiah was that? Was he and like Dana, the chef just, or uh, he was Jeremiah like, was the CDC at the okay. time. And Dana was the executive Sue. Yeah. And they just start yeah. ripping on me. So we're like getting them all back into a, the butter in the oven, like trying to cook them through, you know, it's just, so ever since that, like, did the shit roll downhill um, with, with, in, in that in that operation? Was it like it would start with Sean and then it would go down to Dano and then go down to Jerry? Yeah, and like, and then it would just filter. Then it would the be guys. like usually the, the or CDP. would he like powwow with those guys and be like, "Hey, what's going on here, guys?" No, no, it, it was down. like, what yeah. the, it was like what the fuck? Yeah, and then <laughs> you know, like the chef de partie, whoever's working like meat or fish, meat was like the kind of the highest, and yeah, you know, they start going on everybody too. So that. Everybody, it policed its, uh, itself. Right. So that didn't happen often, but that was the last time, like, I ever second-guessed something not being... Yeah. If I didn't think it was right, I was going to... You were like, I'm just starting over. It. I'm just going to fix yeah. it. Yeah. Smart. <clears throat> so when you have those things happen at Capertsy, yeah. how, do you, how do you manage that now? Well, I have a couple young guys and then a couple guys that have been... One that's been cooking with me for a long time and... Uh, one that's been a chef longer than me and uh, with the younger guys usually it's it's like why didn't you like if, first of all every time you prep something let me check it mm-hmm. so we don't have to get to service and it's not right yep if you've never done anything ask questions I'll make you know I'll make it with you the first time like yeah I make every recipe the first time we get it going so you mm-hmm. know what but like I can do it with you make sure it's right so we don't get the service and it's wrong. Um, and then if you don't understand something or have never done, you know, like just 
ask and they're afraid to ask questions, I think. Yeah. And I don't know why. I don't know if it's like, oh, I think I can do this or it. it and it's through a different thing, not just like do recipes. You, do and you stuff. think that's, do you think that's a generational thing? Do you think it's the young I think it's cooks? generational. Yeah. Because I always felt like, like, so Andrew Carmelini is the person I work for the most. Okay. Right? I met him at Le Cirque and then worked with at Danielle with him and all that. And he was like the CDC and I just, he was my mentor and he was, he could be difficult to work for. He had very exacting standards, but he was also a cook chef. Like he was on the fucking line, you know? And like, if you were struggling, he was, he was on your station, like cooking you out of the shit. And like, so I had this like immense respect mm -hmm. for just like a, that he can do everything that we're doing. Right. Right. He understands like so much more than I do. Um, and he's my chef, right? He's the guy. Um, and I, so I had never had an issue like talking, like asking him, Hey, what I don't, I'm not getting this. Like, like Neoki, like Neoki in his kitchen was like, like, only certain people were able to make it, mm -hmm. right? Because like he was so particular about it, and I and I ended up becoming one of those people, and it was because I just watched him do it all the time. You know, he'd be like making yoki, and I'm like oh, fucking over there. I'm like, hey, can I can I work on this with you? You know, yeah. And and he would like show me how to do it. Hey, it needs to be like this and not like that. If the potatoes are like that, this is, you know, and like just working me through the process. Um, and I and like my cooks don't do that either, right? Like they're not like, hey, chef, I I want to ask you about this thing. Right? Yeah, it's like very like there's like a, a barrier. There's, do you find there's that? I do. Yeah, I mean, I have a couple, couple of the younger guys that are, that are good about like wanting to do more, but I think they want more too fast now. Mm -hmm. Yes, but they, you know, they want more, but it's like understand the foundations and the technique behind something before you try to create mm -hmm. something that's brand new. You know, mm -hmm. I I do. I like the cooks that are that want to do more and like ask for more and but I also don't want you know I learned at Husk like if you rush somebody it's it's we don't have stations at Capricci like I give you a couple dishes like you know what you pick up mm -hmm. at Husk it was like if if I moved somebody from cold apps or from prep even to cold apps or cold apps to hot apps which was AM hot apps first which is busy at lunch because you're pretty much picking up everything yeah and they'd be like, oh, I've been working this, you know, like, when can I move to veg one? Yeah. And it's like, well, you're not ready. Well, you throw them on veg one and then they just destroy service. And you're like, that's why I told you. Yeah. And I've seen people where I moved them up too quickly where they just could never recover from that. It was mm -hmm. just a downward spiral and they would quit. Yeah. So I'd rather make someone wait. And then when they're, you know, instead of sometimes you got to throw people to the fire, but sure. That's when you can tell when someone's ready for like the yeah. next step or some more work or, but yeah, there's definitely this, I, I don't know. I, I would come in on my days off at McCready's and, and when I was working in Orlando, I would come in early to tr like it. I was really into charcuterie back then. And, uh, I would come in and try to just make whatever I could. It was a hotel. So we yeah. had rooms where I could, have a refrigerator and hide stuff and yeah um you know <laughs> projects to yeah. play around with and uh you know mccrady's had such a program i would come in on my day off and to jump in and help like what yeah, yeah whoever's what, like what are we hey we're making charcuterie today? on monday and i'm off so yeah come in and work eight hours and learn how to do it learn mm -hmm. how they do it um i think that's the only way you get better is by putting in the time is like if you like Tom Brady's not going to be the greatest quarterback ever. 
Is he the greatest quarterback? I think so. Okay. Is that because it's, he plays? If he wins us it, another it, Super Bowl. Is it because he's with the Bucs now yeah. or because he no, is? No, he, no. I mean, he, he legit he is. is. You know? yeah. um, <laughs> he legit is. But he practiced. Like, he's just nonstop. Like, you're, yeah. you're always trying to get better. So, if you have – it's a sport, but if you have a craft, like, the only way you're going to get better is to, like, commit to it. Mm-hmm. You know, I paint. So, I can tell when I – and I, I – because my time is so limited, mm-hmm. I don't take enough time to work on basic stuff. I – I just want to paint, paint, paint every time. Right. And I know the time, like when I do take time to do these like practice skills and different technique things, I can see it in my paintings that they're better each time. Mm-hmm. And if I don't paint consistently, I regress, you know, like one step forward, two steps. It really is. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's the same thing with cooking. Like the only way you're going to get better is to apply yourself unless you just want to be a line cook the rest of your life or work like in a buffet or something. Right. You know, there's definitely like, there's, I want to talk about the painting cause I think that's super interesting and how you apply that to your, your work and from a creative standpoint, from a technique standpoint, maybe from a training standpoint, mm-hmm. but, but you touched on something, the line cooks, right? There's, there is a, there's a breed of people that are line cooks. You know, I think I'm one of those people. Like, I'm an awesome line cook, and I love it. There's bangers, like people that you can get in that you could throw 30, 40 tickets at them, and they can keep organized and just, like, keep food flowing. Um, and then there are, like, hyper finesse, like, tweezer mm-hmm. cooks, right? Um, everything's, like, kind of mise en place ahead and prepped out and, like, you know, it's very exact kind of cooking. And there's, like, this kind of hybrid Right, where people are like can line cook a la minute and it can still have finesse. Right. And I and I differentiate the two but through finesse because I have I have both, right? We have a bunch of restaurants, so I get like all kinds of cooks and I love kind of like figuring out where people are at and then trying to like work on the skills they don't have. Right. Right. So if they're a banger who just come in and they're just like, you know, they're like a middle guy, you're like, just put him in there, he can do whatever. I work on those people with finesse, right? Because if, if I can make you a better if I can improve your technique, then you can be really special, right? Because you can you can handle volume, you can handle this all minute cooking, but then you can actually do it at a very high, like an excellent level. But then there's the the, the super creative um, chefs that can put plates together, but can't handle more than a couple pickups at a time. And, yeah. and so those people, it's like, how do I organize them? How do I? And a lot of times, it's like, you know, you have to have a little bit of grit to be a line cook, right? Like, it's you're not a scientist at that point. You know, it's an organic thing. You know, you can't control the service. Um, service is going to happen, you know, and how you work within that, you know, is how good of a cook you can be. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? I know you mentioned somewhere, I heard you say somewhere, uh, maybe an interview or something I was listening to of you, you mentioned something about um, a la minute cooking mm-hmm. and being reactionary yeah. as, a, as a chef. And uh, can you talk about that a little bit and your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, my first few jobs were, like you said, uh, very busy, line cook. So I did my internship at Beacon Restaurant in New York for Wally Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and that was a busy That's restaurant. That's all, yeah. And it was, you know, it doubles five days a week, sometimes mm-hmm. six. So you're doing lunch and dinner, brunch and dinner. You're responsible for almost everything on your station. There mm-hmm. were, like, a few things that one prep guy did. Yeah. But it was usually, like, bulk stuff that didn't really affect saute right um and you're just like it was a legit saute station you had like 
I can't remember. Three I think it was like an eight range, but like yeah, like yeah. You're, you're just pans like. You got pan. You got stacks of hot pan. Duck. You had. You were responsible for. That you'd have to get them on cooking before lunch. You'd have to pull them off after lunch. You'd have to break them down. Yep. On top of doing all, you know, which now like probably would be fine, but for your first like serious like line cook job, it was it it's was a lot. lot for me. And uh, like it, it was bit. You know, you do 180, 200 for lunch, and then two hundred something for dinner, and. Uh, it's just constantly busy. I go down to Orlando and it's a restaurant in uh, a hotel. So, you know, 500 cover nights for yeah. average weekends. And then like a slow night, it was like 250 to 300. Right. And you're just like trying to find places to like let fish rest. Cause it's like, it's so many, you know, yeah. the, the station they threw me on, like I skipped over, Somehow in my life, I skipped over Garmage and hot apps <laughs> at every restaurant I worked at, you know, and uh, they called it the teppanyaki station there, but it was like a teppanyaki grill that Todd English wanted to cook all the seafood on. Yep. And you're responsible for like, it seemed like 40% of the menu came off that station. Right. Because um, there was like a fish of the day, but it was like a, a option of like four different fish. <laughs> He just so you had like twenty, you had like twenty or thirty fish on, you know, like on yeah, order you'd any have given like time. You're twenty like, corvina, twenty bass, <laughs> yeah. uh, fifteen grouper, twenty salmon. Yeah, um, you have three different sauces, but they could add crab or lobster. It was yeah, just <laughs> you're responsible for all that stuff. Yeah, you're just trying to keep your <clears throat> stuff straight. Yeah, and it's you know just busy every day. You know, you're just prepping your station every day. Yeah. Um, but I think it's important. I don't think, I think everybody wants to do fine dining now, mm-hmm. which is cool. Like I get it. Um, I do too, but you know, there's this, uh, the skill that's missed out on if, if you haven't worked somewhere where you have to work quickly, you have to learn to work organized. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to like the preps one thing, like you can prep all your stuff, even at like a fine dining restaurant, but if it starts to get hairy in a fine dining restaurant and it's not like a place that has 30 cooks, like, right. You got to figure it out. So, um, and I think that's the conundrum, right? Is like, so I came up in fine dining, like these mega, you know, fine dining restaurants, mm -hmm. but we had like, we had 30 line cooks, right. You know, working any service, you know? And so now I, you know, our food is upscale. I I don't consider it fine dining because we're kind of like, gritty and kind of you know our our service is a little more casual we're not mm-hmm. stuffy at all um, but it's like super upscale food and we do volume but in order for us to be profitable you know like i have budgets to hit right like i can't have i can't have 30 line cooks right you know i can have six you know so how do you do that volume at that level without you know when mm-hmm. you're not charging 300 dollars a head you know for dinner like that's yeah. a challenge and that's how mccrady's was you know there were there were six cooks, you know, including pastry and cold apps. And then you would have like one sous chef and a chef except for on like Monday, Tuesdays, and then, uh, maybe Sundays and then Sunday, Mondays, you would just get slammed. It'd be like 20 covers on <laughs> yeah. and then you just get slammed because everybody <laughs> industry would come in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then you had like a prep guy. Yeah. So like, you know, we were cranking out this incredible food. I think that if it's in New York, like this restaurant's two stars easy yeah 
and there's you know six seven guys in there just grinding like yeah. four different menus you know it was That's but hard. luckily i had worked at those restaurants where i just had to figure it out yep. how to how to just get it up make sure it wasn't hammered and mm-hmm. now i could re- refine but i had the speed already in mm-hmm. in i've you were used I have to the refined, volume. Yeah. You're used to the volume, so you were able to like refine refine your technique. Exactly. And and that's awesome. Yeah. And then, you know, going to Husk was kind of a hybrid of McCrady's and Husk, the one here. Yep. So it's back to volume. So when I when I left Husk, you know, going to Bastion was being able to kind of refine and get back to like where do I eventually want to be? Mm-hmm. Which brought you to Capward Seat. Yeah, here I am. We we gotta talk about it. Because <laughs> we were talking a little bit before we started, and we touched on it. So you get offered the job here. You make the move from Atlanta mm-hmm. back to Nashville. Yep. So the big return. But what was the transition like going from – Hold Bear was a big restaurant too, right? That was a monster. Yeah, it was massive. Um, I think our busiest day was like 800. Ugh. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. So, so how do you make that move to that, to like a 20-seat – tasting menu situation as the executive chef yeah that's what was that transition like um i mean it was it was stressful because you know the expectations are high like with the people who had worked there in the past you know i think anytime you're taking something over and just completely changing you know as far as that restaurant's concerned it's such an overhaul but there have been such a change between kind of what had been done you know, two chefs before me and then the chefs before me, it was so like opposite ends of the spectrum. And I was kind of going back to what I know, which is, you know, I mean, I just simple food, you know, I just try to make things taste good. And, um, the, the goal was just like, let's open with, it was during COVID. So let's just get open. Let's manage everything. Let's, uh, you know, we were buying as locally as we could with everything kind of just getting open and navigating. And then through the last couple of years has been kind of evolving and, and I think really just trying to find like, who am I as a chef? What, what is my food like, Uh um, in in that direction. So when I do finally leave, it's like, you know, what do I want to do? Yeah. So I would say the menu we opened with, June of 2020 is completely different than what we're doing June what, of 2020. In what way? So like what food were you doing then? Uh, and, and before, I mean, before, was, before that, were you ready? Were you ready for, were you in your mind? Were you ready for this to take over? As I was ready exact? for the challenge. I didn't, I wasn't sure what I, you know, like I knew what I wanted to do. I wasn't sure what I was going to be able to get away with. And like, I, I wasn't sure what I was going to be able to accomplish. Right. Um, so you may, ready, maybe I limited myself then, or, you know, and, and I think it's not like I didn't custom create the space. So there, there is limitations that come with it. Mm-hmm. But I, I think I was ready. Uh, I don't know if, if I, I would say I was cooking after a year, like a hundred percent more confident than I was, you know, coming in. Yep. So where, what was your food? What was your food like when you first took over your first menu? 
um, and you know, and why, and then where do you feel like your food is today? Um, so we, I mean, we, I guess it's not insanely different. We've began exploring more, more ingredients I had never worked with before. hadn't worked much with just because of being at Hus for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of January of 2021 as, Hey, we're going to be, we were, we're open. We're, everything's busy. Like we don't have to, um, and then, you know, at, at a certain point, I always try to support Bear Creek Farms because Leanne and Bill have, like, been so good to me, like, mm-hmm. treated me like family since I've been here. But I, I realized that, you know, I grew up in Florida. Like, I love seafood. I've always wanted to cook seafood. And, and have at just one point, I was like, this is a seafood restaurant. Mm-hmm. That, you know, so if people ask if there's a lot of seafood on the menu, just tell them, yeah, like we have sea urchin in dessert right now. So mm-hmm. there's seafood throughout the entire menu. Now we do, we'll do pork and beef and I do enjoy doing like game birds and stuff like in the fall and winter. But I think back then it was, it was much more like we were just like buy as much local produce as we could mm-hmm. because not every restaurant was open and a lot of the farmers were, we're struggling. Like mm-hmm. they're like, we had to throw so much stuff away last year. We couldn't even give it away. Yeah. And with that, you know, like stuff we had been doing for years, like let's turn this into a miso, this into a vinegar, this into a kombucha. Let's just lacto ferment this. Let's, we got a bunch of fruit and let's just juice it and throw 2% salt on it. Mm-hmm. And then that became really like kind of like the base of all our sauces, like almost everything, unless it's like a classic, like, French sauce, instead of using alcohol, we're using different like fermented juices and yeah, liquids paste and, and juices yeah. and things like that to, to develop these sauces. And I think that has allowed us to be able to like deliver way more flavor than we were when we, when we first opened. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just kind of be- become something that's like a part, even more so than we ever did it at Husker McCready's for right. me just like a basis like how can so that how can that, i substitute like oh, i would usually use madeira in this what do we have that's mm-hmm. kind of funky but we can right. add we, has some sweetness yeah but uh got it and so is that like is that part of your toolbox right now is like is that how you think about food um when you're creating a dish are you like are you like okay i've got these like wacky you know uh, ferments back here and I think it will go really good with like a uh, like a scallop yeah right? like like it's got an acidity or whatever and then you, and you build it from from that angle rather mm-hmm. than saying okay I'm taking um, you know a partridge and um, and I'm gonna start with a partridge right or do you like how do, how do you approach your what's your creative process it's kind of like now? you know what what is in season protein wise mm-hmm so like spiny lobster i'll use last year's spiny lobster as an example um because it was like something people really enjoyed so we had a bunch of fermented yeah yeah so they're coming out of the keys so they're anytime they're they're on like we're grabbing them yeah so you know we did fermented pineapple there was a bunch of pineapple left over so we fermented it reduced that down with a little bit of sugar to balance it out and then made a pineapple ketchup mix those two together and then we slowly barbecued it mm-hmm. and then served it with uh 
like a mayonnaise made with a chiote paste and then like a house made tahine. It was like very simple, but yeah. like people, you know, a little bit of saffron and the pineapple as you cook. It just, I don't know, kind of came together. So it became this thing. And then, you know, taking all the insides of the, the spiny lobster, we made a garum. Uh, so eventually we did another like barbecued spiny lobster dish, you know, later on in the season with a garum made from, from it was almost like an oyster sauce that we made yeah. with, you know, once we thickened it and sweetened it. So you just kind of trying to find ways to like develop more flavor and utilize like, let's say plums, like green gauge plums season ended. He's like, I have 20 pounds left. And I'm like, oh, screw it. Let's buy them. Yeah. Buy them. Um, use some of them and then the ones that are all super ripe turn those into something and then next year right. or in the winter when there's nothing really available we'll utilize them so I, I like to try to utilize like you know one to two ingredients but see how many times can I get that ingredient into the dish in different right just to kind of develop the levels and layers so does your dish so does the dish you you want the dish to I mean are you, this is, this is something interesting I, I talk to my chefs about a lot is like developing their cooking voice, mm -hmm. right? Like, cause I don't want everybody to be doing what I'm doing, right? Like you guys all have your own experiences that you're coming from and I want you to like develop that. And so, um, you know, one thing that I do a lot, I think it sounds like you do a lot too, is that I'll, I'll like, there's an ingredient that's usually, it's a product or a protein or whatever, and it shows up in different iterations in a dish, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and like for me in my mind when I'm creating it, it's about telling the story of that ingredient in this environment, right? Like whatever I'm doing, right? Is, is that kind of like what you're talking about? Like you'll have different iterations of, of a product treated different ways um, or is it more about the composition of the dish? Like I think how do you... I put all these flavors together to make it? Yeah, I think it's... Um... Or does it Maybe change? a little bit of both. Yeah, yeah, it just depends on the dish. But, like, you know, how can I uh, – I'm trying to think of a good example of something. You know, if you – I'll just make something up here. But, like, if a reduction of, like, uh, a fermented passion fruit. Um, so, yeah, we did a dish with passion fruit cooked down with, like, shallots. We reduced it almost like a beurre blanc. would butter it out to order uh, and then fold – passion fruit seeds in it so it'd be like sweet and mm -hmm. sour and salty and then serve that over um skate wing that was just like roasted and brown butter sounds good and then there was like <laughs> like a caramelized white chocolate and macadamia nut puree underneath it so that you know that's an example and then i, I don't mind i don't mind repeating ingredients throughout a meal as long as mm -hmm. they don't they're like it's different each time right because when I ate at Arpege, you know, they they have they use their garden and whatever's in season, and you might have rose like four different times, but like one's a rose salt, one's like rose used in a sauce, mm -hmm. one's like a pickled rose petal. You know, it's like yeah. I think it's okay to repeat these ingredients, especially if something's in season and you're trying to highlight it. Right. Um, as long as it doesn't seem redundant. How often are you changing your menu? So we do uh, four big seasonal changes. Okay. Uh, but every week, you know, we're changing anywhere from one to three dishes, just depending on what's available. So we do, we do thirteen courses on our first seating and eighteen on our late seating. So wow. that that allows us, especially the eighteen, really allows us to play around a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. So it just it kind of depends, and sometimes you know, you know, like I just had a guy text me like chantrells didn't land so I mean I gotta figure something out so yep. it's uh 
that also is, is a challenge of trying to figure out what's available, mm-hmm. um, when it can be here. And do you, do you guys have like a printed menu that you serve your guests or is it just kind yeah, of Yeah. Like, so at the end of the meal, we'll, we hand out a printed menu. Gotcha. Um, but they, but it's all a surprise when they sit down. Yeah. Okay, cool. So they sit down um, and it's like, um, the restaurant's, is it mostly like the, the chef's it's, counter? Yeah, it's a U-shaped counter, and we have one uh, table in the corner that can seat four. Okay. And I haven't been in there yet, so I don't know. Like, So g- give us the lay of the land. Like, what, what is, How is the, the kitchen laid out? So if you're a guest diner coming in to like sit down and eat, what do you see? Yeah, um, so, um, I mean, you could see the kitchen from any angle. The chefs will be preparing. You know, we have there's five of us right now, so, you know, depending on where you're sitting chefs either preparing something in front of you or if you're kind of on like the u end of the bar you have like a view of both sides mm-hmm. of everything that's going on and you know you have that I, I think one thing that people really enjoy is the interaction that we give with the the guests are you guys talking to the guests yeah and people ask a lot of questions and cool. so it's not like super quiet like no 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 okay. and it you know most of the t- well sometimes people are like kind of some people just don't want to talk really right. they're quiet and, yeah. and you think that was one thing like you learn, like you figure out like who wants to be talked to and who doesn't. Mm-hmm. And you kind of figure out the people that want to know more or just want a brief description of what they're about to eat. Yep. Um, so it's all kind of like, you know, it can be interactive, but it's kind of up to you guys to yeah. figure out if somebody wants to kind of just enjoy their experience or if they want to be a part of the, the thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And what, then what, sometimes what it, it's a little like Edebevicky, you know, or like if someone's smart enough. You, I don't even know what that word uh, is. Or, Can uh, you use Edebevix. a word I understand, please? So there's a restaurant in Chicago <laughs> called Edebevix. There's one here, uh, Jack's Last Resort or Dick's Last Resort. Okay. Have you been there? No. Where like the, the servers are just like. Oh, they're, they're, they're like smart ass. dickheads. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's part of their shtick. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes like depending on how guests are, if they're like joking around, we'll give it back a little bit, Okay, which is fun. Yeah. But I, I think I want to do one night where it's just like a Dick's Last Resort. And yeah. Anytime someone says something stupid, I can just say whatever. Say whatever. Really whatever do whatever wise. Yeah. <laughs> do, do, you got, do you guys enjoy that part of the experience? Because I could see how that would be challenging, right? I mean, first of all, you're in an open kitchen. That is a totally different environment than I think other, like, mm-hmm. you know, other environments, you know, because the kitchen could be chaotic and crazy um so being in an open kitchen where people can see everything obviously you got to be meticulously clean and organized and and all that although you should anyways i would argue yeah but then that that added level of you know not only can they just see you but they can talk to you and then having to to add that into your game while you're trying to cook do you guys enjoy that does it a challenge does it do you hate it what's going on i think the challenge is learning i i enjoy it um, and I think it's what's made part of the experience that we've been offering um, special to people mm-hmm. is, is that interaction. Yep. The challenge is for, I don't have a problem just walking away from someone while they're in the middle of a sentence to make sure I'm not burning something. Okay. But I think, you know, some people have a problem learning how to like work and talk at the same time. Totally. Uh, and sometimes <laughs> you have to go over and be like, Hey, yeah. I, you know, I don't mind saying in front of the guests like, yo, finish this now <laughs> but that that would be the only issue now some people you know if you're really shy then you're probably going to have a, a hard time 
Do you have any shy people on your team? I have, yeah, yeah, I have one and they sure. struggle with some of them. Yeah, <laughs> but he does. Well, he doesn't really talk to anybody, but yeah. he, he's like one well, my youngest guy. He's opening up, but uh, he's very quiet and he'll just kind of just run the food. And, yeah, you know, if guests joke with him and talk to him, he can tell he's like, yeah, he gets a little yeah. like red faced and like. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny. Yeah, I can imagine that being difficult. Although, I mean, so what is the pace like for you guys? Is it is it hectic? Is it stressful? Is it, or is it kind of like fluid no, and controlled? Well, everybody seems to think it seems fluid from the inside. It's a uh, it fast like, pace. It feels like, yeah. yeah. I mean, cause like, at any moment it's going to come off. At least mess. for the <laughs> first three seatings, it's like, if you don't make those turns then we're behind all night. So yeah, the five thirty we got to get their first four courses down before the six o'clock sit. Now five thirty show up at like five fifty, which, happens often where people show up late mm-hmm. he already puts you behind so you have to like yeah um so we kind of have these marks where it's like hey we got to get these down once everybody's you know when people come in and sit down and they get greeted and we talk about beverage we'll drop snacks on them and they can be picking at something mm-hmm. and then i don't care like if they have to wait 10 minutes while everybody else sits down before we start getting their meal going as long right. as the snack hits yeah they've already you know because um, that also allows us to buy some time Mm-hmm. Uh, between everything so we used to do like six people sitting every 15 minutes now we do half and half every 30 which has made okay. it night and day so different. you so you're doing your menu and it's like um it's broken for each seating is broken into two halves is mm-hmm. that yeah. basically so you do like uh, like 10 people 10 by 10 or 10, 10 by 10 12. yeah okay and, and and you wait for all those 10 people to be seated and snacked before you start mm-hmm. the the menu yep okay got now it. if somebody's running late like really yeah, late we, you might we got to push them, them. and then if show, if they show up at a certain point if they're if they're over half an hour late if they show up, they have to jump in where everybody is. Gotcha. Okay, so they miss out on like mm-hmm. one and two maybe or yeah. whatever. Gotcha. Okay, that that kind of helps the, con- the. Do you have like a clock just like going off in your head like the whole service? You're just like, oh shit! Like, is it just like we got to be here now? Now we yeah, got to be here. I, I we usually gotta- know if the if the main course isn't going out between seven and seven ten, then we're we're fifteen minutes behind. Yeah. So you just constantly, it's like the matrix. You're just like, blah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, it's a push. And then once we, you know, once we get the eight fifteens up, we got to push to get the, uh, sorry. Once we get the, the five thirties up, we got to get it cleared and remarked. There's some nights where we get everybody out by seven forty five. Yeah. And it's like empty for yeah. half an hour. And, and there's you, nights you, you, where like, nobody wants you, to You leave. like walk around the door. You're like, look at me. I'm yeah. the master of this but universe. But the thing about those nights is yeah. like. It's like everybody forgets they have a whole second service. Right. They're like, great job, guys. And you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. (laughs) We're about to get. Pay attention. Um, (laughs) Because now you got 18 courses and it's the same thing. Now we got to rip like five or six dishes up before the 845 sit down Mm -hmm. or else it gets jammed up, you know, because if they, if they, they'll catch up. I mean, they catch up. Yeah. But uh, at a certain point, you know, if you don't keep the pacing right, it's like now I'm picking up two of my dishes for one for 10 and one for 12 and yeah. it, you know, so yeah, it can get hairy. Yeah. Are you, so during the, um, the service, are you, are, do you work a station? Are you working the pass? Yeah, is there so a pass I, or is it like, there is a pass, but it's kind of like everything comes to the middle on it except for like small things. And 
you know, we had only been four of us, so I was picking up five dishes, four dishes. And then, like, if I'm not picking up a dish, I'm usually, like, cooking a lot of the protein. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, if I have a free hand, I'm helping whoever is, like, picking something up, like, plate. Gotcha. Um, now that we'll be back to, like, having five of us again and then hopefully back to, like, fully staffed, we'll, uh, you know, I'll I'll probably do a couple of the dishes, which allows me to be more hands-on with everything and, and make sure, like everything looks right is going out right and then so you'll, to, you'll be responsible for less pickups yeah you'll do like two pickups so that you can kind of like i like cooking though so that's yeah. what you know like yeah i don't want to just give everybody all the dishes and then just walk around and right. touch everything yep um so i'll always keep a few dishes and then it's usually like the new stuff like once something's like been going i'll let someone start working it with right. me and then it's theirs but when it's new you want to gotta you yeah. want to finesse it and play with it and yeah exactly. keep it going gotcha how much how much of the cooking that you guys are doing um now is is a la minute cooking is that like a lot kind of, it. of yeah a lot of it i mean so like all of our sauces for the most part well no that's not true most of our sauces are like butter sauces that are made we have a pasta dish right now which like we just reduce like the muscle croissant and it gets mounted with like a foie gras parfait mm-hmm. foie gras mussels i like it yeah <laughs> every time i cook the mussels i throw these like korean soups soup uh like sachets in there yeah because I was doing a Korean dish and I was like, it smells like foie gras. I don't, you know, like just yeah. the aromatics and everything. Yeah, the way it kind of combined yeah, made you like, go. I'm gonna do, a, let's do foie gras and mussels and see what happens. So people and enjoyed it. it, and we throw like black currants, like dried black currants that we rehydrate in blueberry vinegar, and then like fresh tarragon from our garden. Nice, interesting. With pasta. What dishes are you are you most proud of? I think it's the ones that catch people off guard, mm-hmm. like. Um, we have this dish right now. We have a few weird ones. So like this banana, we burn the entire thing like in the embers in the peel, and mm-hmm. then you got you got a live fire. What do you got? We have a little Conroe girl okay. in there. Oh, cool! It just smokes the place out every night, <laughs> especially if you're cooking like wagyu or pork. Uh, or something. something with high fat. Yeah. It's just like, <laughs> uh, but it gets like a black walnut toffee, uh, like preserved, like candied green walnuts. You know, like better mm-hmm. like black and just tender because they've been preserved for so long yeah and then uh caviar and then another caviar dish that's uh this like fruit called nance i don't even know from like central and south america so it kind of looks like a little orange cherry okay but if you eat it fresh it's kind of starchy and tannic but it tastes like parmesan cheese rind and like pineapple oh weird um so we cook that down into a jam and then brulee like an apois style cheese what happens to it when you cook it down um like what is it like it it does firm up so like you have to chew it Uh uh-huh um, but we cook it down with sugar and vinegar, like a, a ratio. Out. Yeah. So it just concentrates the flavor, but it okay. still tastes like the, it still has that it weird, like Parmesan. Yeah. Like, yeah, it tastes, it tastes like a pineapple, like dum dum kind of, you know, cool. or the tropical. Yeah. Dum-dum yeah. That's interesting. And then we take all the pits since like you got to punch them out like a cherry puncher. We make a cheese out of that or we call it a cheese. So it's cooked down with coconut and cocoa butter mm-hmm. and then let that infuse and then press it. And then that gets shaved over the top, so it looks like cheese. And then, like, a real cheesy caviar. Nice. So it's like, a, you know, we're not just putting, ca- like, both of our caviar dishes are used for, like, salinity in the dishes. Right. They're not the focal point of the dish. They're they're an accent for right. whatever. That's I, I like yeah. doing that, too. Um, 
Yeah, I don't. I don't ever. I don't know that. I don't know that I've ever put a caviar dish on a menu. Like it's always been accompanying something, right? Like adding like a, a sea, like a. I love the oceanic mm-hmm. part of caviar. Like the salt is like always great, but that kind of like it doesn't taste like seafood, right? right? It doesn't taste like fish. It has just like this oceanic like briny mm-hmm. thing going on that I love. Like right. I love it, and I could use it anywhere. And I never used to like it. Like when I worked at like Aqua, <laughs> so working at Aqua in San Francisco with Michael, like that restaurant, the year that I was there, there was like something reported where we sold more foie gras per pound than any other restaurant in the world. Like it was, I mean, he did like whole roasted fucking lobes of foie gras, like 10 or 12 a night. People would order like for like four or $500. People were just crazy there. You know, they're yeah. like, oh yeah, whole roasted foie gras. I was like, that is disgusting. Yeah. yeah. That poor guy like that worked at that station would just get, he's like, fuck me. Like, I'm just they, so. They don't roast quickly. No. They take time. <laughs> and, and like, and if you don't do it, like, there's so much finesse that goes into cooking it properly. Yeah. Right? Because like, it leaches its fat, like, and then it becomes like, it, now it's stewing. Mm-hmm. It's not searing. So it's like, you really have to manage it. And he would just get hammered with these things. But anyways, and, um, um, and just so much caviar like there's like caviar everywhere like pounds of it a was day. he doing the trios then or was that yeah 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 the trios and and um and we also had this caviar parfait thing that we did which was basically like a like a bow round like on the bottom mm-hmm. and it had like all the layers of like caviar garnish like stacked inside of a mold and then like almost a full i mean it had to be an ounce and a half or two ounces of caviar like on top and you like had to it was a fucking pain in the ass, but like we sold thirty of those a night. Yeah, you know, so that's like, a, that's a, that's over two pounds of caviar. It's insane. <laughs> you know what that's I mean? So just like on one dish, so it was just it was just crazy the amount, and I never liked it. Have you been to Locust yet? I haven't. He he, he puts yeah. a lot of caviar. Does he? Yeah, you got to. All right, I'll go. I'll go because I can get. If down you like on caviar? It. I do. I do now. Like then I hated it just because my palate sucked, and I like. And that was the other thing too. Is like when I was a young cook, like I remember. And I want to ask you about this, about how your palettes developed, mm-hmm. and then we can go into painting a little bit too, because the palette, palette, see how yeah, there. Yeah, I like that. Um, <laughs> but um, like when I was a young cook working in New York, you know, I was fascinated with kitchen life. Like that's what got me right. It was like this high octane, like Anthony Bourdain thing, right? Like, like when I started cooking, chefs were like doing drugs on the line and just like grinding it out. I was like, fuck yeah, I'm yeah. a pirate. Let's do this, right? And um, but my palette sucked. And like, I didn't even eat fresh tomatoes until I worked at, I think, Le Cirque in New York because I had never had a, a, like a farm fresh tomato, mm-hmm. right? Like, I just never, I never you liked it. You had the grainy ones in yeah, the Taco like Bell the, Taco that are, you scoop off because they ex- terrible. Exactly. I was like, These, this fruit is, is fucking disgusting. Yeah. I was like, why do people eat this thing? Yep. And I think when I was at Le Cirque, Andrew had introduced me to like an heirloom tomato. He's like, hey, try this tomato. I was like, I don't eat tomatoes. He's like, uh, okay, first of all, he's like, if you ever tell me no again, he's like, we're done here. <laughs> like, I'm going to ask you to taste shit and you're going to fucking taste it. And yeah. I was like, uh, yes, chef. I was like, sorry. You know, I was like, well, I was like, hold up. Who am I? Yeah. And he's like, try this. Right. And it was just like a freshly cut tomato with some like flake salt on it. And it was like a juicy, acidic, sweet, like a beautiful tomato. Right. And mm-hmm. I was like, I was like, holy shit. What is this? It's like, it's a tomato. And I was like, I, I don't. Like you're blowing my mind here, right? And yeah. I and I think back to that now, and I'm like, I remember when I like didn't know what flavor was, and I didn't know, um, and I was so narrow-minded as to my approach to um, my palate, what I would eat. Now I'll, I'll try anything, right? Mm-hmm. Like like that's part of the fun is like 
And there's still things I don't like. Like I won't eat a tomato in the wintertime, period. Like mm-hmm. I just don't do it. Right. You know, I'll get San Marzano tomatoes in a jar. And that's better for mm-hmm. me than, than a tomato, like a fresh tomato in the winter. How were you, were, were you always an eater? Did you become, what was your approach to, and what is your palate like now? I was, I was always an eater, but I, I didn't try a ton of different things. My grandmother cooked dinner for us a lot. So she had like this rotating, like 14 dishes that they, they didn't change. They just rotated every couple of weeks. Yep. <laughs> um, you know, I, I started tr- when I first started working in restaurants, when I really started trying different things, uh, my first job in high school was as a food runner at this restaurant called the wine cellar. And it was ended up being like my first kitchen job too, before I went to CIA and, uh, it was continental cuisine. So you had like rack of lamb, Chateaubriand, Dover sole, all table side, yeah, the classics. So sick. You had, uh, and now Sean's doing all that shit at the continental. Yeah, and I, I love it. I love the old school stuff. Um, at first time I had Bernays, like uh, Marchand de Vinsauce. Mm-hmm. Um, they did veal and chicken. Um, oh, what's it called? Schnitzel. Mm-hmm. Like the Meniere. With like the, they did like the anchovy caper lemon wedge garnish. <laughs> yeah. They did tomato roses on the scampi. Dude, yeah. it was so old school. Yeah, like yeah. baked Alaska tables. Yeah. And then on Mondays they did like a continental buffet where they just took all the leftovers and turned it into stuff so i, I really tried to chef the tornado on top chef really like my first day i was like because it's the one thing i knew how to do yeah i was like i'm just gonna tornado everything because like i'm really good at that yeah there you go just rip them out <laughs> i love the classics man that's like my thing. um but it, it's like it was cool because like i may have had eggplant parmesan before but i don't know i had it there right i had yeah i never had spetzel before you know, all these different cream sauces they were making, like take leftover like salmon and cook it down. And they made their own gravlax. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the chef, the sous chef, Zeke made everything. So it was just like cool. Like that was the first time I was really exposed. I was like, this stuff tastes good. Yeah. Now, I didn't have like a tomato that I, the first time I ate a tomato and was like, I could just eat this was in Nashville. Yeah. It was like the best tomato I'd ever had. Not saying that there weren't better ones out there, but I had never had one, one that like spoke before to you, then yeah. that I was like, I get it. Yeah. And now, you know, I, I use them in summertime. I love them. We'll, yeah. ju- we'll juice a bunch of, we'll ferment tomato juice, green and like heirloom. Mm-hmm. And we'll use it throughout the year. Like reduce it down with sugar. You just keep that like in bottles, like sitting around, like in yeah, your pantry like, or just vacked and frozen, you know? Yeah. Um, and then once you make that reduction, it's like almost like a molasses with like, like a tomato molasses. Yeah. That's got this like, lactic acid umami flavor to mm-hmm. it funky um Super but you know like i had this conversation with one of my cooks the other day because he's like i don't eat lettuce and i was like well what if you go to get a job interview and the chef asks you to make him like the best salad you've ever had and you don't know what to put with it because you don't know what this kind of lettuce tastes like yeah like he hands you arugula you don't eat it so you don't know that it's bitter and you right. you don't balance it and right like you or like radicchio or something like yeah you have to taste stuff because that's how you develop you know, this flavor library in your head of all these things mm-hmm. that taste good. When I was young too, the flavor Bible, I think it was called. Yeah. Is a really good book. That's yeah, a great book. To like, if you don't really know what goes with something, mm-hmm. 
because you have like now I try to expose myself to weird things. Like I'm about to put a durian dessert on. Funky um, man. <laughs> yeah. So the double glove when you touch that yeah. stuff, man. So like I'm, you know, <laughs> like I'm now trying to utilize things and expose myself to things I'd never had before. Yeah. How much time do you spend playing with new new stuff? Well, it's like I was do, like, like I had been talking about kind of the reactionary thing is like I'll get something in, I'll taste it, and then. Like force myself to put a create on. it, yeah, yeah. Because if I if I take too much time and I play around with it and it might evolve, but like I've realized, like I take this time to think, I have this idea and it's going to be incredible. I end up, it ends up not being what I want, and I get more frustrated yeah. than just reacting and letting like my palate and like you know, kind of like other senses like work and just do their thing. I like that. You don't have a set dish in mind that you have to achieve necessarily. Right. When you start the process, you're kind of like, okay, it's 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 gonna be whatever, some fruit, right? Mm-hmm. And you're kind of like, I, I think this is a cool idea, and you start with it, and then it just kind of evolves, and you just let it, you kind of let it go, rather than say, hey, okay, it's gonna be you know this grilled steak with this funky fruit, whatever. You kind of, if that doesn't work, you're you're able to pivot and just kind of like roll with it right and yeah so go. like uh, are you constantly tweaking dishes even like kind of like like are you tweaking dishes that are on the menu today like okay you know what the way we did that yesterday i'm a little like I it think depends we some of yeah. them yes some yeah. of them no gotcha some um, of them you get right and you're like some okay. of them it takes us a you know like a few like we'll put it on and then we get feedback for like the first week and then i'll go home and just kind of like do any change anything yes or, or you know like we'll tweak it yeah I, i've only had to like once or twice like tweak something in the middle of service mm-hmm um, but I think it, like if things are constantly trying to make it better or figure out how we can make it better. Yeah. But like uh, I had a muscle dish on before and we had a bunch of leftover pulp. So we made like essentially took cantaloupe pulp and made kimchi out of it. Funky. And I was like, what can we do with this? And I was like, oh, let's do this like Korean mussel soup, but like make it more of a sauce, grill the mussels, cover it in the sauce. And then we took fresh melons and dressed them in the would let them like marinate and kind of break down in the cantaloupe pulp kimchi uh-huh. and then kind of created this Korean dish. And instead of putting kimchi in this soup that would normally go in there, we just put like a fruit. So I wasn't sure how the sweetness was going to go with yeah. the, with the, the mussels, you know, like cantaloupe and mussels. Yeah. You got some weird combos going on yeah. coming out of that brain of yours, man. <laughs> like, like some of the stuff's like, wow, like I would, like, you know what I mean? You got some interesting, I think that's the one, like the thing, if it seems weird and people taste it and they're like, this tastes like, this tastes like Taco Bell, then I think I nailed it. Yeah. You know, like if it tastes like something that they don't understand what it is, but they eat it and it tastes like something familiar, then I think that's the goal. Yeah. For a lot of the stuff. Totally. I remember we did, we did a dish once, um, Andrew did a dish. Um, like his tomato risotto he's like known for it now right and w- i was working hot apps and he taught me how to make it and i fell in love with it and i still i still cook it today sometimes mm-hmm. for different things and it tastes like spaghettios but it's like it's like you know carnaroli rice heirloom tomatoes confit and oil like it's like this huge fucking three-day process yeah right getting getting it there but when you make it all minute and you finish it with the mascarpone and everything it like it tastes like, it just reminds me, I'm like, fuck, this is such a good dish. I love it. Right? Yeah. And it's just a bowl, it's like a little bowl of rice. Um, and it just, but it sparks those like, your just intense food yeah. memories, you know? And I'm like, mm-hmm. 
you nailed it on this thing. Yeah. Right. I love that. Because I mean, I think like that's special to a diner. We've I've made something that just random before. I, I don't remember specifically the dish, but this lady's like, this tastes like something my grandmother used to make for me. Yeah. Every time I went over, and then it's like that's a you know an emotional response for them. So it's, yeah, it's cool for. Maybe every other person in in the room doesn't get it, but like one person to get it and it'd be special to them is that's the one another positive about working in like that open kitchen because you can you see, get direct feedback from people yeah and you can see yeah. like sometimes it's hard because they're making faces and you don't know if they're good or bad <laughs> yeah. but then you like <laughs> to hear like positive stuff like that is right makes it worth it like you know the tough nights yeah so you've been working these wild menus for the past two years. And typically, a catbird seat is kind of a rotating kind of chef that comes in over usually a two-year period. So you're kind of coming towards the end of that tenure. Mm-hmm. What What's next for you? What are your plans? Well, I'd like to open something. You know, I think that's kind of what I'm trying to figure out now is, you know, what is that going to be? Where is that going to be? everything that goes into that mm-hmm. uh, I want it to be in Nashville yeah you like it here this is this is home base yeah good yeah so the the plan right now is something that's uh seafood driven still but okay um kind of exploring more of that like reactionary cooking would it be would it, would your dream spot be a tasty menu restaurant like you're doing now or was it uh yeah I would say tasting mini restaurant and um even smaller than Capricci. really where i can how are you going to make money brian <laughs> like you know it's a business right you have you have I two know, kids at home that need to eat i, know. I have I've, they like, have to eat they have, have to eat foie gras and like and uh and, and caviar yeah well, i was actually going to open it in a broom closet so <laughs> rent's going to be cheap nice no i mean i have i have other plans with things that you know i'm thinking i can do to kind of balance that yeah make it one business is that is that, have you found that to be difficult how much i'm interested one of the fears that i've had as a chef and, and restaurateur now um is how like how are you guys profitable how do you stay profitable how to like how does that work in in that environment because yeah. i've always looked at it and like i've done the numbers in my head and i'm like fuck dude like i'm not gonna be able to make any money doing well this. that's the thing is if it's hard you know we're i think we're st- it makes more sense now for me. I think you're going to see more small restaurants opening because mm-hmm. of staffing issues. Yeah. Um, if you can find the right space and it makes sense financially, I think you, you you're, it's easier to control your cost sure. because you know how many people you're cooking for. You know how many people you have working for you. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't have to bring in like 20 pounds of beef hoping that I don't know if they're going to order this and then right. I got to figure out how to use up 10 of it. Right. I know everybody gets... You've got the same. You've got zero. You've got minimal waste. It's like very minimal waste, and and any waste is util. You know, turned into something and utilized. So we're not, you know, just tossing things. So you, I think it's easier to control the costs in in this kind of environment than it is. At least it was for me at Husk, Mm because you just never knew what people were going to order. There'd be nights where like all the fish would get hammered. There'd be nights where like all the steaks would get hammered. And it, you couldn't tell. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like lunch where you knew you were going to just sell fried chicken and burgers right. all day long. Yeah, yeah. Um, There's a lot more, like, variables yeah. every day. So I, I think there there are positives. It's just how can you 
you know, making enough to pay everybody. Getting the sales to get it right. Right. It has to be of, of appropriate size to be able right. to like make all the numbers work. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. So I don't want to get into, we have you at least for another while at Capert C. Nobody has mm-hmm. to worry that like next week. Right. You're gonzo. Yeah. All right. You still got some time left. Yeah. So great. And then what I want to do is I want to circle back and do another because I feel like we just started getting comfortable and getting chatting. Yeah. And I want to have another conversation. Um, maybe, maybe after the season. Cool. Let's get to the season and then um and kind of get back together and talk about. I know there's a move coming up with Catbird Seat. Mm-hmm. Um, that was announced recently that the restaurant's still going to operate, just move into a new location. Yeah. Um, so that's going to happen in the not too distant future, which you'll be a part of. Right. Right. Part of that switch so yeah maybe once we kind of get through all that kind of stuff um we can get back together and talk about cool where things are going sounds good anything else you want to talk about i don't think so you got going on no all right we can talk about painting then too i paint but yeah it's Let's not talk about I, painting i like to paint uh, your I, paintings it, are pretty was, good by the way I was, I was i was spying your um your uh instagram thanks man, your shit's good man appreciate it i'm i'm you not gonna do I've, I've been doing like some some stuff for uh, the rest at the hotel I used to work at in Orlando. Cool. And it's been very difficult. It took me five tries to get it right. Uh, and I still have to do one more hotel for them. And, and at that point, uh, I don't think I'm going to do any more uh, commissions, commission work for it. <laughs> Cause it's not fun. It, it takes the fun out of it. Right, I, I don't get to just now. paint. I don't get to just paint. Right. It's not what I have to out. try to do something and, and it's how, and nothing against them. Like it's very specific. Like, right. There's a swan and a dolphin on top of two buildings, and if they don't look right, yeah, then it's you, you it's start not over. what it is. Right. Um, <laughs> I just want to be able to go outside, plain air, and, and just like paint something. So, so is, I that, get what, is that what you like to paint? Is what? what? Yeah, I would say pl- you know plain air painting. It, it's hard, but like there's nothing like you know I used to forage a lot with Jeremiah when I was at McCready's, and there's something about being able to kind of get outside and just fresh air kind of like connecting with everything and just like kind of not having to think about anything else. Is the painting for you a creative process or a therapeutic process? I think it's both. Yeah. But unfortunately, I don't want to say I'm a perfectionist, but you know, I, I have, I have the same attention to detail on it that I do with cooking, but I'm not as good at painting as I want to be. Mm. So it's hard for me to like what everybody sees and thinks is great. I think is terrible. Yeah. I think that's just, I, I think a lot of chefs are wired that way. Yeah, maybe. And I think painters too. My fiance is actually an amazing artist and she's a painter. She also does like leather work and all this other shit. She's like super creative and she like, it's really hard to get her to show her work, let alone sell it. Yeah. And like, but she paints stuff and I'm like, it blows my mind. Yeah. I, I can't, I can't do that. And I'm like, wow, you are like hyper talented. She's like, ah, it's not good. And I'm like, you are insane. Like normal people, people that aren't painters mm-hmm. look at shit like this and it blows their face off. They don't yeah. understand the magic of it. Right. Right. Yeah. They and think so, it's so good. And I'm like, it looks like my son painted it, but yeah, no, it. it's really good. I, I've checked it out. I was like, damn dude, you've got some skills. Thanks. Cool. Keep it up. Appreciate it. Yeah. I'll try. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks brother. Thanks for meeting with me. Good luck with everything um, coming up the Capbird, And, um, and I look forward to kind of circling back with you and, you know, half a year or so and talking about what's next awesome awesome yeah thanks thanks. yeah feel free to leave some comments or questions 
um, in the comments section, or you can hit us up on our Instagram page and leave some comments there. If there's anything you'd like for me to cover or people you'd like me to talk to, or if you just enjoy the show and want to let us know, that would be appreciated.